Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. You think you know London? Well, guess again. There are so many incredible gems and hidden histories just waiting to be discovered. In this jam-packed series, we'll take you to every corner of the superb international city that is London. Visiting secret local haunts, meeting the people behind them, and unpacking the history of London through their eyes. Hop in and take a ride with us in the London Black Cab and see this fantastic city in the fast lane. Today I'm visiting King's Cross, an area located to the north of London. The area has a rich and colourful past. Its location at the meeting point of road, river and rail has shaped its history. Until recently, the area is regarded as one of the more insalubrious parts of London. But recent redevelopment has totally transformed it into a wonderfully vibrant and fashionable place to visit. My first stop today is the picturesque and historical St Pancras Old Church. Welcome, my name is Lester Hillman and I'm a tour guide uh, for Camden and a historian and writer. Lester, I've been a London taxi driver for over 25 years. I've passed this church countless times. It's the first time I've been inside. It's a church that we think has 2,000 years of history here. The wall behind us, stitched into the fabric, is Roman tile, Roman brick. There are monuments to individuals who had key roles in English history. Queen Elizabeth I Cook, for oh, 29 right. years, Daniel Clark and his wife Catherine served in the royal pantries and is buried here. Evidence of who the vicars have been here. A wonderful man called Charles Lee, uh, before the invention of the internet, did incredible amount of study and he pieced together over 50 vicars, witnesses at key moments in English history, from Fulcherius in the 1100s, right through to the present time. Roger was a priest here at the time of Magna Carta. We know that um, John Clifton probably witnessed the Holy Roman Emperor going by for those peace negotiations after Agincourt. Lester, I'm looking at the altar. It looks fairly plain. 
The altar is, as you say, a, a simple altar, but set into it is a nave altar that some people think may date from the 7th or 8th century. It's Kentish ragstone, and we know that around the 1290s there was an inquisition here or an audit, and uh, there was reference to this nave altar. Um, it then disappears, but in the mid-19th century, digging to replace the tower, upturned the altar with the church silver. We think it was buried there at the time of the English Civil War and uh, is now uh, incorporated back into the fabric of the church. Over 2,000 years, the church has been remodeled a number of times and reused materials. In the 19th century, it was brought back into use as a parish church and it indeed had galleries here for hundreds of people. There are no pews here today and other detailing has changed since after the Second World War. And we have these chairs uh, which are quite low. People today are somewhat taller than they were in the 19th yeah, century, yeah. so perhaps it's time for us to think about a new seating. What was the area like prior to the railway around the church? It would have been pleasure gardens in terms of places of refreshment, spas, uh, farmland and open space. And of course, let's not forget the River Fleet, which had a major influence on this area and now is almost hidden. The gardens here have a wealth of individuals and personalities and drama. The author of Frankenstein, Mary Shelley, for a time, she lived just over by the hedgerow there. She was brought up in this area. Her parents were married in St Pancras Old Church. And I think she got some of her ideas about science from living here and the changes in um, new gas works, new technology, the Regent's Canal mm, coming here. In terms of numbers of people that come into the gardens, the principal reason they come is Thomas Hardy. We have a spectacular ash tree surrounded by gravestones, gravestones that became available when the gardens gave up space for the building of the railway oh, in yeah. 1867. They probably didn't think that it would become this iconic fusing of stone and tree when they first put them there. And Thomas Hardy oversaw the seemly treatment of the burials and reinterments and the works going on. It had an enormous effect on him. He gave up uh, his work in London. He went back to Dorset and became the writer and poet that we know of. So are there any other special groups of people who are synonymous with this cemetery? Specialist interest groups come round here all the time. John Mills, the last survivor from the Black Hole of Calcutta, is buried here. And, of course, Charles Dickens' schoolteacher, a man called William Jones. Lester, I'm sort of very aware of the area and the changes that are occurring here. Um, do you want to talk me how you see them? When we look at the skyline beyond the churchyard, it is changing before our very eyes. There are huge new residential communities moving into the King's Cross lands. We have several universities, the University of the Arts, and that, I think, is an interesting new chapter for St Pancras. So the future for the area is looking very bright it's... and its historical past will remain intact. The House of Illustration on Granary Square 
is a must-visit for all artists. I'm Olivia Ahmed, I'm curator here at House of Illustration, which is based in Granary Square. For a lot of people as an area of London they haven't visited before, but there's loads to do here. There are great restaurants, there are bars, lots of different public events happening, especially in the summer. The House of Illustration was set up by Quentin Blake, the um, really well-known artist and illustrator. It was set up in 2002 as an organisation and then we opened our first building here in Granary Square in 2014, so we're nearly three years old now. We're the only art gallery in the UK that specialises in illustration. Often illustration is commissioned, it's art with a job to do, and it's the kind of art that we see every day. So posters, in picture books, sometimes it might be a chart or an infographic explaining something in a newspaper, um, sometimes it might be background artwork for animation, which is something that we're showing at the moment. It takes lots of different forms, but it's very different from painting or sculpture. Um, so this gallery is really quite unique in showcasing that kind of work. We have a permanent gallery dedicated to the work of Quentin Blake and his archive. So Quentin's archive is 35,000 pieces now. He started working when he was 16. He had his first illustration published and he's still working today, uh, many years later. So um, we're always showing Quentin's work, but we pick different bits of his archive. We have 10 exhibitions every year and they're always completely different from each other. So coming up next year, we've got exhibitions about textile design, political satire, and we're commissioning some new artwork from up and coming illustrators as well. And so at the moment, I'm working on an exhibition for later this year in September, which is work by Gerald Scarf, who's known as a political cartoonist for The Times and other newspapers. But actually, this is taking a totally different look at his work, and it shows his work for, as an animation designer for films like Disney's Hercules and Pink Floyd's The Wall, and also his work for theatre design. He's designed operas like The Magic Flute and ballets like The Nutcracker. Our current exhibition is called Anime Architecture and it's about the background artwork that you see in films from the 1980s and 1990s like Ghost in the Shell, um, Pat Labor and Metropolis. These are really um, kind of iconic Japanese animated films uh, and you see them on screen but they're actually, uh, the backgrounds are done by hand so that hundreds and hundreds of paintings are done by different people to make one film. We're a unique institution so we appeal to lots of different people. From the calm of the gallery to one of the most energetic places in King's Cross. Welcome to St Pancras Station. My name is Josie Murray and I'm the Senior Heritage Advisor for High Speed One. St Pancras is a very special building, a Grade One listed building and there are only a small number of those in the country, such as Westminster Abbey and St Paul's Cathedral. Can we start with the gentleman who's beside me? Certainly, yes. This is, uh, let me introduce you to Sir John Betjeman, poet laureate and writer who was a passionate supporter of the railways in England. And the reason that he's here in St Pancras is because he was one of the, the key figures that was responsible for ensuring that it wasn't demolished. And as a consequence of his actions, the station was listed Grade 1 in 1967. There must have been enormous challenges to build a station because it was quite built up at those days, wasn't it? Oh, it was a very built-up area. I think the most significant challenge was how to deal with the Regent's Canal. William Henry Barlow decided to come over the top of the canal because that would also allow them greater flexibility to expand their operations if they wanted to. 
with the platforms being above street level, there was a big challenge to, to Barlow as to how to maximise that space. So rather than building that brick arch form to support the train deck, as you would have expected, mm -hmm. Barlow looked to the factories um, and industry up in the Midlands and the north. And originally there were nearly 700 cast iron columns um, that were used to support the train deck. Pretty soon it was realised that there was quite a commercial value to have that area of space in central London, not least to William Bass of the Bass Brewery Company in Burton, who was a shareholder in the Midland Railway Company. In the arcade area where we have the shops and the departures areas for Eurostar, that was once a massive storage area for beer. One of the things that Barlow said when he was talking about the station following its completion was that the size of the beer barrel dictated the whole grid of the station. So I'm sure their travels around the station, I notice there's an awful lot of shops and there are lots of people milling around. St Pancras is, is more than just a railway station, it's actually a destination in its own right. Um, we have a lot of visitors, we have nearly in excess of 50 million visitors a year. Wow. Huge number and, and a proportion of those don't come here to catch the train, they come to visit the restaurants and bars. We're currently going to be welcoming some new stores into the, into the station, Chanel, Calvin Klein, Ted Baker, alongside our existing favourites such as Fortnum and Masons and Hamleys and John Lewis. So it's really important to us to, to offer something different. No, it seems a truly sort of unique space. There's a lot of artwork. What's the story behind that? It has been referred to in the past, particularly this train shed, as a work of art in itself. And HS1 invests in the arts because it reflects the character of the station, but also inspires and excites our visitors. It's unexpected. You don't expect to see art in the station. Every year, in partnership with the Royal Academy, our Terrace Wires programme engages with world-famous artists to create innovative and beautiful pieces these installations sit alongside our permanent pieces, such as the, the Paul Day statue, the meeting place, which we're standing next to, and the Sir John Betjeman statue. There's excerpts of Betjeman's poetry have been inset into the flooring of the concourse. Oh, right, yes, yeah. We also have two pianos in the arcade that anyone can play, um, and we discover there's a huge amount of talented people that just love the opportunity to play the piano because the acoustics in the building are fantastic. And as a result, we've had people like Elton John, John Legend and Jules Holland have all come into the station to play our pianos. Well, Derek, I brought you here to this place because I think as a cab driver, you'll appreciate its significance. We're in what's now called the Eastern Arch, but it was in fact an exit. So customers, when they would arrive into St Pancras, would come by cab from Euston Road and they'd come up the cab road and then they'd be dropped off and come into the booking office to buy their ticket and then onto the platform. The cabs, meanwhile, would have gone on a ramp down onto Midland Road, driven around the station and come up another ramp onto a large roadway which is directly behind this arch. And there the cabs would wait. So Midland Railway customers, if they could afford it, didn't have to go outside at all. Now, Josie, Standing here, I can see the roof. It's splendid. When the station opened, it was the largest single-span roof in the world. It was a huge engineering achievement and was much copied. In fact, the first Grand Central Station in New York is pretty much was pretty much a replica of St Pancras. All right. The train shed is nearly 700 foot long, 240 foot wide, and 100 foot high. So it's a massive, big space. 
And the roof shape itself, as you look at it, you'll see it has a point at the apex, and that allowed it to have a much greater span. Now, from the outset, St Pancras was designed to impress. It was a statement showcasing the best products from the Midland areas, and all of the materials in the station that were there for sort of public view were sourced from the Midlands area. Well, Derek, to finish our tour of the station, I've got a bit of a treat for you. We're going to go up on the roof. Oh, fantastic, Josie. Let's go. OK. Josie, I've picked people up from this station in my taxi many times and I've dropped people here many times. I will never look at this station in the same way again. But I've got one last question I'd like you to answer. OK. Who or what was St Pancras? Ah, St Pancras is actually a Greek name that means something that holds everything. So it's a very nice meaning. In terms of why the station's called St Pancras, we're situated in the parish of St Pancras in oh, Camden. Right. And St Pancras Church is just a short way up the road. Josie, you've answered all my questions I came here with today. Thank you so much for having me. Now somewhere more serene, somewhere to relax. Derek, welcome to the St Pancras Renaissance Hotel London. My name is Anders Wynnum. I'm the uh, Director of Sales here. It's our pleasure to have you. And as first of all, thank you for inviting me to this splendid hotel. I mean, it's just breathtaking. Um, what can you tell me about the history of the Renaissance and Pancras Hotel? Originally, it dates back to the 1860s. It was commissioned and built on behalf of the Midland Railway Company by a renowned architect at the time, Sir George Gilbert Scott. But the actual grand opening was on the 11th of May, 1873, opened by Queen Victoria. And as why is it such a splendid hotel? I mean, every room, everywhere I walk, it's almost as if it's over the top. Essentially, there were no expenses spared at the time. The building cost the Midland Railway um, half a million pounds sterling in the money back then, which was uh, an absolute fortune. And it was really a statement of the wealth of the railways. And moving on to where we are now, can you just tell me something about this space? Because I almost feel like I'm in church. Well, we're standing on the third floor of the historical part of the hotel. The original design was, in fact, meant to be very Gothic and cathedral-like. It was something that the Victorians found very fashionable. George Gilbert Scott actually imposed this architecture on the building and deliberately made it look like a, a cathedral and a church. He was um, a pioneer behind several cathedrals and churches in the UK as well at the time. So we have these incredible vaulted ceilings here. The design behind us, as you can see, is meant to represent the heaven and the stars looking down on you, which was in uh, Gothic mythology something that the Victorians believed a lot, and it was supposed to be seen as a sign of good luck. And we also got uh, a lot of different medieval-related crests around us, as well as some of the uh, shields of the cities of the Midland Railway. We have places like Derby, Nottingham, Leeds. I mean, this was really um, the lifeline between the north and the south of uh, the UK at the time. Equally, the stonework and the masonry, a lot of the brickwork were, were actually quarried and brought down from places in the north and midlands of the UK by, by train. And in terms of restaurants and bars within the hotel, what yep. can you tell me, what facilities do you provide? 
So we have um, three restaurants in the hotel. We have our booking office bar, uh, which was actually the original ticket hall connected oh. with St Pancras Station. So uh, we have uh, a lot of the original listed woodwork. The original uh, ticket office structure is still uh, within the booking office today. Uh, that in itself is a Grade One listed structure protected by the House of Lords. There's also 173 different. Uh, original rosette carvings around the um, perimeter of the booking office again, just um, signifying the, the, the detail that was lavished on the original building. Uh, we also have the Gilbert Scott restaurant, which is uh, operated by Marcus Waring. Uh, so that offers our um, guests and uh, external customers a, a slightly different uh, style of menu. And then we have our Me and Me Cafe bar, which is actually on the concourse of the um, platform just outside the hotel. In terms of events, do you have any sort of annual events here or is there anything that's sort of scheduled? It's a real mixture. I mean, we have um, in the hotel 11 meeting rooms, all very, very different. So we can host um, a small boardroom meeting from um, a few people right up to a standing reception of 575 people. Uh, our largest room, which is Handsome Hall, uh, named after the uh, Victorian Handsome Taxi, oh, right. as that was where the uh, taxi rank used to be in the Victorian times. So there's a really splendid roof terrace on the back of that. Another really interesting space called the Ladies' Smoking Room, which was uh, an area that uh, the Victorian high society ladies would meet, um, smoke cigarettes and just gossip about things. Are there any other famous or illustrious characters associated with this building? Quite a few. Uh, I mean, the uh, patrons at the time of the opening of the hotel, uh, as it was seen to be uh, a state-of-the-art building, we had one of the first hotels with revolving doors in London at the time based on an American design. So we had members of the Vanderbilt family and also Jesse Boot, who is the founder of Boots the Chemist, oh, right. um, stayed in the hotel at the time. We are known as the Spice Girls Hotel. Below us we have the grand staircase that connects all three floors of this part of the building. So it is actually where the Spice Girls recorded their wannabe single back in the 1990s and I believe that we're almost at the 20th anniversary now of that particular event. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This area, it's changed dramatically in the last sort of 10 years. Do you think the hotel has had an influence? As you know, King's Cross was not the best renowned area of London at the time. If you have a, a hotel such as this, as well as um, a regeneration of the area from a business perspective, the two just naturally married together, uh, coupled, of course, with um, Eurostar as well. After the relaxing atmosphere of the Renaissance Hotel, now to visit somewhere a little more energetic. I'm meeting with Saoirse Hunter, press and media manager for the place. What goes on here? Everything relating to dance. We've got a theatre which is completely accessible to the public with over 200 shows a year. We have quite a range of performances, but it's all in the contemporary dance vein. It can use lots of different techniques. So you might see something that looks a bit like ballet, or you might see something that's a bit kind of hip-hop. Um, so it's quite exciting. It's throwing lots of different styles together. We also have classes and courses for all ages and abilities. And we also have um, London Contemporary Dance School, which is one of the leading conservatoires um, for training new dancers. What's the history of the Place Theatre? Um, the Place has been here since 1969. It was one of the sort of first um, organisations um, for contemporary dance in the UK and it's very unique because it has the theatre but it also has London Contemporary Dance School. So the idea was to have professionals alongside students who are learning to dance and, and become choreographers and that was really part of the vision of Robin Howard who was our founder. Can anybody sort of turn up and say, well I'd like to learn to dance? London Contemporary Dance School, it's, a, it's like a university, it's an international university or a conservatoire, so you have to apply in the same way that you would for a, any other kind of degree course. Ah, oh, right, okay. But if you're a member of the public, you can come to a class. So there's kind of um, ballet, there's hip-hop, there's um, flying low, which is a, a very new technique which people are loving. And it's for all ages, for children from 18 months all the way up, you know. Right. And you've got over 60s classes as well. Um, so there is something for everyone. Have you had any sort of well-known artists perform here? Our theatre has seen some of the sort of most well-known names in UK-based choreographers perform their work on the stage here in the early stages of their career. So people like Hothes Schechter, Akram Khan, Jasmine Vardaman and Wayne McGregor have all been here in the earlier stages of their careers. Now we've sort of got the next generation of the go-to dance companies coming here. How many hours a day would a dance performer have to study and train? Our students come in and they usually come in 8 o'clock and they leave at 6. Um, wow. And that is, a lot of that time is actually spent in the studio, conditioning the body, learning new techniques, doing things like Pilates to so they you know, avoid injury, which is incredibly important for any sort of performer. It's a wonderful, vibrant area now, I think, and with the uh, Knowledge Quarter, which has um, been established here, 
There are lots of organisations like the Wellcome Trust, Central St Martins, the British Library, all in this very condensed area and we do projects with them on a regular basis which is really exciting for audiences and also for us creating work. Fantastic. I mean I've really enjoyed seeing the area grow and change and it's now somewhere where you really want to come and visit because there's so much to do. Definitely. And it also feels much safer and it's really easy to get to because, you know, you're just five minutes from King's Cross, which is a hub of a station, there's Euston, and you can get black taxis at any point. It'll just drop you off at the door. If you're coming to London and you want to see a really bold, exciting dance show that might just surprise you, this is the place to come and see it. We've got a very small theatre, so you're up close to the action and you can see, feel and hear everything on stage. Very reasonable ticket prices, up close. It's the place Well, to I like the idea that in theory I could book a dance class, so if I needed to come in and get some exercise, you may well see me. That'd be wonderful, I'll keep you to that. From the dance studio to a gymnasium, but don't be fooled by first impressions. Sam Bernard tells me more. Hi, welcome to the German Gymnasium. My name is uh, so Sam, I'm the general manager of the restaurant. So as you, as you notice, we're just across the road from King's Cross Station and the Eurostar uh, departure and arrival. Now Sam, I'm a London taxi driver and I've been past this place countless times. The one thing nobody's ever answered to me, why is it called the German Gymnasium? Well, there's an interesting story behind it. So it's called German Gymnasium because it was gymnasium and German because it was built by the German community and for the German community in London uh, back in 1864. They were already quite, quite open uh, to the broader population back in the days. Um, so behind that, you, you will know that in 1866, the first um, Olympic indoor happened here in the German gymnasium. So we had people from obviously every, every country, from all over the world. So you're telling me the first indoor Olympics was actually held in this building? Absolutely, from 1866 and then every year until 1906 when they moved to the to White City. It was known then as the, the White City Games. Wow, I didn't know that. That's fantastic. It was in yes, quite an inclusive, uh, inclusive gymnasium. Back in the days, you could think you know, that ladies uh, would have other priorities to go to the gym, you know, like put food on the table. But already in 1864, you know, they were allowed to come to the gymnasium and the first floor was theirs to, to exercise. Oh, so the upstairs was the ladies' gymnasium? Absolutely, yeah. And downstairs, presumably, no, was the gentlemen. Yeah, they, there was a big fence around the, around the first floor so that the gents couldn't peep on the, on the ladies up <laughs> there. Not like the gyms yeah. nowadays. No. Has the building changed much over time? Yes, actually, he had, a, he had many lives. It was here way before us and, and probably would be there way after us. When it was a bit, um, a bit bigger, they had to cut off the, the west elevation over there when they, they bought St. Pancras and the Eurostar terminal in. So for the time, I think pre-war, uh, it became a storage uh, for the offices, uh, an exhibition center as well. You had fashion show in there. Um, at some point, it was left in derelict. Um, when, when, we, when we had the building, when we started the fit out, so there was a full first floor here, rather than just a mezzanine level. So we had, we had to break that down to bring back the original configuration of the, of the building. How long ago did it become a restaurant? How long have you been involved with it? So we've opened it in, uh, in November 2015. The choice to keep the German gymnasium name, obviously it's, um, it's a great two-listed building. Um, 
and we, we, we really wanted to, to keep, you know, that heritage uh, so that we could play actually a bit around with it. And actually, you know, if you go to the toilets, you'll see the, the wallpaper uh, that's, that's influenced by, by scene of the past with boxing in a gym. Kept the original hooks as well, whereby you had a rope that were hanging. Tell me a little bit about the restaurant as it is today. Casual place to come, enjoy a, a pint of beer or a glass of wine. All right. Have a hot dog, a German burger, a Kalsiver or a schnitzel. So we've got a lot of regulars that would come in and want to eat at the bar. You know, it's very, uh, very comfortable. Have a conversation with the bartender and enjoy just a good main course and then, and then fly to the Eurostar or to the train to the, to the north, to Leeds. Um, whereby the, the upstairs bar would be more of a destination bar where people would come for cocktails. Um, and stay, you know, like a couple of hours and enjoy different, different cocktails or... Right, so much more relaxed. As a London taxi driver, um, I've seen this area develop and it's become an area that you become very fond of. You can see it growing. Very eclectic and, uh, yeah, and once again, it's become a very pleasant place, I think, to live in, to work within. Um, and for us, you know, we're glad to be part of the, of the redevelopment. trip to King's Cross wouldn't be complete without a visit to the Canal Museum. The canals played an integral part in the industrial growth of this area of London. I'm with Chair of Trustees Martin Sack to find out more. I know a lot about the roadways in London but I know very little about the waterways. The waterways actually go back many centuries and the River Lee navigation is one of the first semi-artificial waterways that has been carrying goods into London from the northeast. The Regent's Canal that we're next to here was finished in 1820. It's one of the latest canals in the UK to be built. Were the canals rivals to the railways or do they sort of work together? Well, there was a bit of each, really. Um, there was quite a lot of canal and uh, railway interchange in London, so traffics were carried between the two, particularly coal coming down from the north and transferred to canal boats for local distribution. What's the sort of story with the canal now? I mean, is it still used for transportation? Uh, or? Well, no, with some very limited exceptions, uh, the canal is not used for commercial traffic. But the canal is used a great deal for leisure. There's also quite a large residential community living on boats in London. Are the exhibits permanent or do you, are they transient? And We have a bit of each. Most of the exhibits are permanent, but we do have a programme of temporary exhibitions here. So at least twice a year we change the temporary exhibition to give people something to come back for. And what can you tell me about some of the artefacts that house within the museum? The centrepiece here is the narrowboat Coronis. Partly a reconstruction, but it's an original hull of a typical 1930s narrowboat for long distance carrying of goods. The reconstruction of the cabin is the thing that fascinates visitors young and old, especially the children really, because they go in there and they think, well, where did people live? 
it's a, a tiny space for people who lived in incredibly cramped conditions that we would consider completely unacceptable today. Having a wander around the museum, I noticed a lot of brightly coloured artefacts. Is there a reason behind that? I don't know if there's a reason, but it's certainly a tradition that the boats and all sorts of things that went on the boats were brightly painted. Water cans and spoons and pots and pans and yeah, things. That's what I all kinds of things were decorated with this tradition of roses and castles painting, which is carried on to this day. And then I went upstairs to the first floor and I saw the horse. I oh, you met the tracks. horse? Yes. Well, the horse has a name. We call her Henrietta. Oh, right. But horses were used for pulling boats on the canals and they were also used for delivering goods. Our building was originally an ice warehouse, uh, but it was turned into stables for ice cart horses. Internal combustion engines didn't come onto boats until 1911. So before that, the horse was the only way apart from the occasional steam tug. When the horse um, started getting its marching orders, it was the Bollander engine that took over, and we've got one of those very early canal boat engines on display. So horses played a really, really important role, and their upkeep and they, their care is a really important part of the canal story. The only floating boat that we've got here in the museum Bantam 4. This class of tug was built for canal maintenance mainly, uh, and it's a pusher tug. It's got two wooden buffer beams at the front and is used to couple up to a large barge, which would normally be full of spoil from maybe dredging or something like that. Uh, and then this tug would maneuver that and move it around. Within the museum, we explore the ice trade, the use of ice cream and the selling of ice cream, and we introduce you to Carlo Gatti, who we were very thrilled, in effect, to have him as, as part of our history. He came over here uh, to open a string of restaurants, but he also built his business. They imported ice from Norway by sailing ship across the North Sea. They brought it into Limehouse, came up to our landing stage here, and then they transported that ice into what we call ice wells, huge holes in the ground. Once the ice was put into storage, was there a lot of wastage? I have seen figures quoted between 5 and 30% losses. I think that where we are in the, in the trade in this part of the, the world, uh, it will be the 5% end. Once it was here, once it was stored in the ground, the, the, the ground would freeze. Right, and, I see. And so there would be very little in the way of losses once it was in the ice wells. Obviously it was a business, so they, they must have sufficient yeah. left yeah. by the time it got there for them to still be able to sell it to make a profit. Each day they would load carts to sell that ice to hospitals, hotels, restaurants, the uh, Italians introduced ice cream to, to Britain and Carlo Gatti was one of these. He obviously sold ice cream in his restaurant, but he also sold it on the streets. Uh, it's fascinating that something we take for granted today was so important, you know, in the sort of 1800s.
Albatross area has undergone huge changes over the last decade, and Gasholder Park and Granary Square are probably the best examples of the improvements that have taken place. Project Director Anthony Peter. Welcome to Gasholder Park. Behind us we have the Gasholders London. Three interconnected gasholder frames, which within it is a single residential building. We're about 500 metres away from St Pancras Station. We're right next to the Regent's Canal, which is running past Gasholder Park, and we're within the actual heart of King's Cross development. Anthony, I've known this area for over 25 years, driving a cab. Can you tell me something about the history of this land, what was here before? About 150 years ago, the rail first came to King's Cross. Uh, it brought a lot of the goods from the north of England, and it's the coal which started to define King's Cross as we now know it. These gas holders, which we're currently standing within, they were erected to take the coal and to process it and provide gas to a lot of London. What year were the original gas holders, or what period of time were they constructed? These gas holders were built in the 1850s. The site over the last 100 years or so was very active until probably the 1960s and 1970s where it starts to become more derelict. So what was the rationale in trying to sort of preserve it? Would it have been easier just to knock the whole thing down and start from scratch? Well, that would have been the easy option to knock everything down, but we were very keen to hold on to the heritage and the history of the area and retain that character. We've actually had to take down these gas holders, we've refurbished them, and they've taken about five years. So each individual component's been taken up to Yorkshire, stripping back the paint, replacing the corroded metal, and bringing them back to life. When it was originally built, had a large unit which used to inflate all the way right up to the top of these frames and then drop back down again as the gas pressure rose and, and dropped. Um, for us, what was a real challenge was having to remove the remnants of the industrial processes so there was thick, gloopy tar below the ground. If you see, there's a thin band halfway up the column here. Yeah. Now, when the Victorians originally built it, there was a bolted connection within that column. And the way they constructed it is they would send a small child inside who would tighten up the bolts and fix it together. Now, when we came to refurbish these, we couldn't find any small children <laughs> to fit in there. So instead, we've had to insert bands on the outside. What else happens in this space? We use uh, this space and many other spaces for, for events throughout the whole year. Just recently, we've had a, a cider festival, uh, which was very popular. Uh, we've had fashion events, uh, catwalks. So a real range of different uh, activities just to really bring people to the site and give them a chance to experience what, what we've done here. 20 years ago, this was a place you really didn't want to be. It was dark, dreary and dangerous. If you drove through it, you put the locks on your doors. Now the place has been totally transformed far cry from today when tourists from all over London and all over the world, in fact, are quite happy to be taken here. Granary Square itself was actually a canal basin and the 1,000 water jets are actually a reminder of its past. It is surrounded by various different heritage buildings. The most famous one and iconic one is the Granary Building which is now home to Central St. Martin's College of Art and Design. Around it, you have other buildings, such as the Fish and Coal Building, next to the Regent's Canal, Coal Drops Yard, which is where 8 million tonnes of coal would come down to London every year. The granary itself stored wheat and grain. And then there's various different buildings that were used as offices, such as Regeneration House, which is now home to the House of Illustration. Our restaurants are great, and there's lots of them. 
On Granary Square, we have the Lighterman. It's a building by Stanton Williams and it's on various levels. So it's great for people watching on Granary Square, but also for a drink on the canal. We have the ever-popular Deschum on Stable Street, Grain Store, headed by chef Bruno Loubet, Caravan, who were the pioneers here, the first restaurant to open, and then we have a variety of other restaurants. And has the development of the area finished, or is this ongoing? So the development is very much ongoing. We are going to have 60 shops in uh, what was the coal drops, which is being refurbished and reinvented by London's Thomas Heatherwick. So he is well known for redesigning the red buses and also the cauldron for the London Olympics. So I think it's going to be an amazing place to shop. With St Pancras International on our doorstep, you've got Eurostar connections to 10 major cities in Europe including Paris, Brussels, now even Amsterdam. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.